0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello everyone. Welcome in. We are continuing through First Corinthians as we go through the New Testament. And last week we had an interesting dialogue on how we understand chapter 11 and and the role of women, Rob, you gave your take on Mm -hmm. terms of how to read chapter 11 and how it's not a straightforward teaching, how what Paul is doing is interacting with objections. He's quoting other people and answering that. But the difficulty that we have is we're hearing one end of the telephone conversation. And so that's why it might be hard to uh, put it together. So I don't know anything you wanted to say about last week before we move on or, uh, no, I mean, other than I'm
1: right, and if you don't agree, well, I'm wrong. sorry, but you're welcome to continue listening, and maybe you'll learn something. You're probably week. not a Christian if you disagree, right? <laughs> well, I wouldn't <laughs> say it that way, although it's, that's probably true. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, I wouldn't say that God would,
1: but I would. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, that's up for him to decide, but I just would get <laughs> myself ready, you know, for, you know. To be left behind. be good. Yeah, to be left <laughs> behind. You've been left behind.
0: Thank you, thank you. Is, is that a, a copyright claim by saying that? Anyway, yeah. so let's move into the rest of chapter 11 now. And yeah. so Paul shifts uh, and he starts talking about the Lord supper. It seems very strange. Like from eight, nine and 10, you have all this conversation about weak brothers and strong brothers and idols. And, uh, and then it's moving to women and head coverings. And now it's moving to, you know, communion or the Lord's supper or the Eucharist, whatever you might call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an inter- interesting flow here. Let's see if we could put this together and yeah. why it is there. Right.
1: Yeah. I think that actually, that is a really significant point there. Let me start by saying this though, uh, kind of get this on the table. I have a very high view of communion. So don't misunderstand me. I have a very high view of communion. I think communion is uh, the center of what we are to do when we gather together. I know kind of Protestantism, the mm-hmm. center is on the word. Mm-hmm. And Catholicism centers on the communion. I, well, I'm not Catholic, but I do think so. I, I don't believe in the idea that that's actually the body and blood of Jesus. I don't I'm, I don't hold a, a Catholic view of that at all. And we can maybe, if we have time, yeah. we'll flush that out at the end. I think it's helpful. Yeah. But um, I do think that the reason why we gather together on Sundays and not Saturdays, the reason why the Sabbath was changed is to honor the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, whenever you gather together, you eat this bread and drink this blood. You, you do so in remembrance of me. So we have two options. We can do this on a Friday, remembering the day he was crucified, or we can do it on Sunday, the day he was res- resurrected. And I think the resurrection obviously makes the most sense. And I think that's why the sabbath was changed. And I would actually, and I've said this in my in my own congregation when I was pastoring that if we don't take communion on Sunday every week, we should move back to worshiping on Saturdays. Hmm. And I said that in a church that we didn't take communion every week and I was the pastor okay right? um because they they were once a month and we did mm-hmm. i think in our denomination it re, uh it was required that it had to be done at least once a month you can mm-hmm. do it as often as you want yep but at least once a month and i think we did the second sunday of every month or okay. the first or second sunday of every month is what we did was like communion sunday yep and my answer is i and i said this from the pulpit. Well, well i preached through first corinthians and i said i think we should be taking it every single sunday i think that's what it's all about that's why we gather together. Now, I think obviously the centrality of the word, I would never deny that if you know me, that you know mm-hmm. how strong and high a view I have uh, of the scriptures. But I think communion should be done should be done week. But getting yeah. into this text here, what we've, what we've discussed so far now is that Paul began with a now concerning in chapter 8, verse 1, right? So, and now concerning was our key indicator that he's referring to items that they brought up in a letter that they wrote to him. The next now concerning is in chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. So we have this section from eight one through at least the end of chapter 11. Uh, and I think what Paul has just done now at the in chapter 11 verses 2 through 16 that we discussed last week was he addressed women and the things that are happening there. And I think what he does is he simply transitions to this topic. This is not a topic that apparently that they brought up in the letter to him at all. There's no indication mm-hmm. that, oh, by the way, you guys are saying this. Well, let me kind of give you a response to what I think about communion. I think Paul is bringing this up, and I think that's actually really significant. Because the entire letter is about uh, divisions in the congregation that goes back to chapter one, right? I think what Paul's doing now is he's saying this. He said, okay, he starts off in chapter eight saying, look, you guys think you have knowledge, but knowledge without love is worthless, right? You're harming a brother and sister. In fact, he says at the end of chapter eight, for whom Christ died, right? You're sinning against the body of Jesus for whom someone within the body of Jesus for whom Christ died. Uh, Then he goes on in chapter nine to say, you know what? I had all these rights that... I deserve to have, but I didn't use them. In fact, I willingly sacrificed those rights for the sake of the betterment of the church, the the well-being of the congregation of the the community. And in chapter 10, he's like, and by the way, you should learn from the Israelites that they all passed through the cloud. They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. And yet God was not pleased with most of them. And because they did this, 23,000 of them died in one day. And he's like, learn from their experiences that you guys are making the same mistakes. Then he turns in chapter 11 to, as far as women are concerned, and i what i think and what i said last week was i think the context is leading men who are influential in the community and influential in the church are oppressing and or wanting to hold down or hold underneath them their thumb women in particular saying well you guys okay we'll give you these liberties but you have to at least uh wear a head covering while you're praying and prophesying in the church and i think that's what's going on now you get to this section and it's the poor, and we know it's the poor that are being oppressed in communion. Because he says in verse twenty-two, he says, "Don't you have?" This is chapter eleven, verse twenty-two, and we'll go over the whole context here in a few minutes. Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Ah, I think it's the wealthy members of the church who are causing the disruption that Paul's bringing up uh, and shaming the poor. And I think that sh- sets our context. So Paul's like, "Hey, by the way, you know, let me tell you about this." and the significance of what you're doing as it regards to the body of Jesus.
0: So then when we look at communion, which is, you know, at the heart of what we're looking at, and do you have a preference in terms of calling it communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist? Or do you think it matters?
1: I don't have it. I mean, Eucharist is usually reserved for Catholics, right?
0: Yeah. Which is uh, funny because yeah. it's just a Greek word that means to give thanks.
1: But I don't have a, a, a personal preference. Do you have any
0: preference? I I like to change it up just because I have ADD. But I, I <laughs> what I don't like is when we, uh, because in my even in my in, in the Baptist tradition we get hung up on terms and it's like it has mm. to be called this or that. And I, I'm always a fan of like just trying to describe things in a different way, fellowship yeah, yeah. Uh, meal or whatever you want to call it. It's like it's just you know it, I think it's helpful to describe it in different ways. But yeah, I don't I don't get hung up and saying it has to be one way. Right. I don't, I don't uh, either. Yeah. Uh, so, but when we look at it. If we were to say, what is the point of communion? Is it merely looking backwards? Is it looking forward? Like, what is it doing?
1: So communion is doing both, and I think, and we'll get to this at the end of our discussion tonight. Also, that it's definitely rooted in the Passover. So it's and a Jewish uh, has a Jewish foundation. Exactly, has a completely Jewish foundation. It was the Passover meal that Jesus mm-hmm. gives the Last Supper, right, uh, to his disciples in the Gospels. And so the Passover first off remembers Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. So what what we have to understand the fact actually is the Passover or, or the uh, deliverance from Egypt coming to Mount Sinai in the Sinai wilderness, Moses going up on Mount Sinai and receiving the law, that is the establishment of what we call the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. The nation was born at Sinai. The Passover then is this commemorative event that celebrates ultimately the birth of the Jewish nation. So Paul then as he, we already mentioned in chapter 10 that he took the Exodus idea and the crossing through the Red Sea and kind of associated that with baptism. He says they were all baptized in the Moses and in the sea and in the cloud. And then he took the feeding of the, of the Israelites in the wilderness, the manna, associated that with, I think, with communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Uh, he says, uh, they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. So I think Paul is tying communion certainly into its historical roots of Passover. And so, again, Passover then was a commemorative event that uh, just remembered the Exodus. Now, Jesus then takes that. Now, by the way, so when I got to, to my church the, the first time when I was a lead pastor, uh, communion was held with, with matzah bread. Mm. And I'm like, uh, they did it the, they did it one Sunday. I had no idea. And I'm like, okay, we're not doing that again. Well, why not? You know, because Jesus ate matzah. I'm like, I understand. But here's the significance of this. Jesus was practicing a Jewish feast with his disciples and then saying, and I am the fulfillment of this. This, mm-hmm. this was pointing to me, obviously, John chapter six. I am the bread of life. The idea then is, is Jesus is the bread that rises. The Israelites mm-hmm. took, um, ate matzah, or bread that doesn't unleavened bread because they had to escape quickly, right? That was the whole idea. Well, we worship a Lord who has risen from the dead. That's why it's either Friday or Sunday we celebrate communion, and Sunday's the better day to celebrate it because it mm-hmm. honors the resurrection of Jesus. And so, um, I don't know. Have, have you ever had a, a seder meal at your church, or have they ever done things yeah. like that? I've never okay. participated,
0: but we've we've done. Okay, those. yeah.
1: So that was another thing they would do. That and that's fine. I have the idea of having a seder meal on Monday, Thursday. You know, mm-hmm. the Last Supper. We're going to commemorate the Last Supper by having a seder meal. The first thing is this. The idea behind that is is to kind of get back into the background of what was happening at the time of Jesus and the disciples and what that meal was like. The problem with that is that's not what a seder meal is. Mm. A seder meal, and I actually went to the rabbi in town and said, "Hey, you know, help me out with this." And she's like, uh, "The rabbi's like, uh, Rob, the seder was invented in the 1850s. Mm. It, it has nothing to do with the first century Jewish meal at the time of Jesus and the disciples. So if you're doing a seder meal, you're not doing." You're doing a Jewish fest, a Jewish thing, but you're not doing a Christian thing or anything reminding uh, you of Jesus and the disciples. There,
0: it's much more of a Western Jewish. Uh, yeah, practice yeah, that. very
1: much so, right? And so, I said, "Listen, if you want to have a seder meal every once in a while to kind of remember what the what the Passover was like, that's fine, no big deal. But you don't have to have it every year. If you come once, you've come once. You, mm-hmm. it's kind of like preaching a sermon on this passage and then preaching on it the next week. You, you heard that last week. Mm-hmm. We're good. I remember that. I'm, i I, I understand it." The Passover, however, was different. What Jesus was doing was was unique and was different. In other words, a Seder meal is a Jewish meal. A Last Supper is a Christian meal. Mm. And the distinction is is that the Christian meal part of it is that it's focused on Jesus and who he is. And He's the risen Lord who's fulfilling this. Of course, uh, we use Hawaiian bread because, I mean, mm. if you're going to have communion bread it's gonna taste good right i mean uh-huh. let, let's just go all the way so you know we had hawaiian bread that was always good because then obviously you know the idea the priest has to eat the rest of the bread at the end of the day yeah yeah just, i'm just <laughs> kidding but um so anyways so that's kind of what, what goes on so so absolutely to begin with communion is definitely a looking back but it's also a looking forward and i think so that real quick forward the part
0: is important to to, to cap on to the looking back and you'll like this. I'll use what I think would be an NT right allusion, which you would appreciate. That I don't know if it is. So, so while the the Jewish Passover is looking at the old the 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 historic Exodus, the Christian Passover is looking at the New Exodus, and so that's why it would be appropriate to do something like change what you're what you're using for your bread and even the emphasis. You're not merely repeating the Exodus story.
1: Yeah, I think it's looking to the new creation. I'd prefer it that okay, way. i okay. say it that way. It's the new creation. And the new creation, the dead rise. Okay, okay. And that's why it's leavened bread. Uh, and it's looking forward to it. And, I, and I'll tie this in, it's Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 25. Okay. I think we'll look at at the end of this evening.
0: Last week when we were discussing in chapter 11 about women, you alluded to chapter 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you had brought up the idea of in 12.1 now concerning, and you said that a, a few minutes earlier. How that seems to be one of Paul's rhetorical devices. So, do you, how does that help us understand what's happening here?
1: Okay. So, I do think that Paul's sitting there, he's got a letter in front of them. They've got issues that they brought up to him, and now concerning is an indication of, hey, okay, the next matter in your letter. But I don't think that we should say, okay, let's just shelve the previous topic. Like mm-hmm. chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning marriage and divorce. Okay, now we're on to a new topic, chapter 8. And it's now concerning, you know, knowledge and things of that nature. Oh, now let's go to chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. And that those are all to be isolated from one another, they all fit under this larger umbrella. The problem in the church in Corinth was divisions in the congregation. Those divisions were becoming more and more apparent as we proceed through this letter that the divisions were between the wealthy, powerful, elite men, most likely— and women are now in chapter 12, it's going to be, or end of chapter 11, it's going to be with the poor. So I'm going to present an approach to understanding this particular passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. I'm going to present a, an approach to it that you may not have heard before. Now, that's why I started with saying, hey, look, I have a very high view of communion, so don't worry about that. I'm not talking about anything like that at all. But the question is, what's the problem in the, in the church in Corinth? And I think the problem in church in Corinth was they were disregarding and disrespecting the poor and shaming them. And Paul goes on to say at the end of the chapter, he's like, look, if you do this, you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourselves. And then there's this famous passage that that he says, uh, if you eat and drink judgment on yourself, if you do not judge the body rightly, that's verse 29 of chapter 11. And the common standard interpretation of that has been, it is, to my experience has been that if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't take communion because you can't judge the body of Jesus correctly. And that Paul is warning them, saying, you need to respect and understand what communion is. This is the body of Jesus. And again, Catholics and Protestants are going to divide. about whether it's actually the body of Jesus or just symbolically the body of Jesus. That's not what I'm getting at. But this is the standard idea. And that's why, like in our church, in the Presbyterian world, you have the prayers of repentance before you take communion because you have to repent and be pure and right before God and recognize what you do, somber and and uh, all of that. Because, you know, the idea typically it's just, we're looking backwards, uh, whether it's the Exodus or we're looking back at the death of Jesus. And I think what Paul's getting at is that they're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves if they don't regard one another correctly. Mm-hmm. The problem that Paul has is the way you're treating others and because we are all members of the body of Jesus, we're many members, but yet we're one body. He's going to say this repeatedly in chapter 12. And I think he's saying, and that's what you're not doing when you get to communion. And I think that's the problem that's going on. So I do think that 12 through 14 actually is relevant to even kind of keep our mind on where Paul is going to be going with this. He's talking about the unity of the body in Christ, that we are all one, even though we're made up of many members. And if you disrespect members of the body of Jesus, shaming the poor, shaming women, causing friction, causing divisions, whatever it might be, you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself when you take communion because you're not body, uh, judging the body of Christ correctly. And maybe I'll say it, I'll explain it this way. In Matthew 5, the, the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you go to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offerings at the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offerings. And I think that extremely absolutely applies to to what Paul's saying here in chapter 11 in communion. If you go to take communion and all of a sudden you realize you have wronged a brother or there's discord between you and a brother and and you haven't tried to make amends on this yet, you haven't done what you needed to do, then go. Do not come to the communion altar and take communion if there's friction in the body of Jesus and you are responsible or haven't done your responsibility to alleviate that friction. You know, going back to chapter 6, lawsuits amongst believers. What are you guys doing? And I think this is why Paul brings this communion topic up. It was not something that they were addressing or that they had brought up in a letter to Paul. Hey, Paul, you know we got some questions about communion. What do you think about this? There's no indication of that at all. I think Paul's bringing it up to say, by the way, now let's talk about this. Losses amongst believers, the way you're treating marriage and and, the, and singleness and all those issues there, the way you you have knowledge, but yet your knowledge is not with love, the way you're doing all these things to shame the women. Oh, guess what? You're doing this to shame the poor, also, and now the consequences are you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourselves. Chapter twelve, we're all members of one body, guys. So I think that's going to be the, the way I'm going to frame this. So let's look at the text more more carefully. That well, was we go through even, it. Even even to look back to kick it back even
0: further, I would say Paul sets the the foundation for this in chapters three for th- three through six when he's talking about the the body as the yes. temple. Yes, uh, the body meaning the the collective body, and even there in chapter six, you know. It, if you if one person is sinning you're sinning uh, with the whole body and and you're affecting the whole body that way so this is a consistent thing that paul's establishing throughout the whole letter
1: yeah and you are Mm -hmm. the temple of god God. Mm -hmm. yeah this this whole it's about the church what's going on in this Mm -hmm. church and things are not good
0: yeah all right let's read some of this so we know uh and it's a small enough chunk, so we can do that so 17 through 22. what do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of god and humiliate those who have nothing Mm. what then shall i say to you shall i commend you in this no i will not
1: interesting your translation read so mine's in verse 19 says uh, in order that those who are approved may become evident or may manifest and it's Um, I'm not sure. What did you say again there? So you're saying
0: verse 19, uh, for there's factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may have recognized.
1: I don't know if I like genuine or not. I think the the idea of that is those of you who think you're superior, they're elite, you're approved, Uh you know, you're, you're, um, honorable within society or whatever, you know, that has to be, it's very much sarcastic. That has become evident because genuine
0: makes it have that sense of, uh, yeah
1: legitimacy yeah
0: yeah yeah Yeah. i'm looking because i I have a parallel up with the new revised standard and it's it also says something similar for only so will it become clear you among who among you are
1: genuine so yeah it it also phrases it the same way um i could look it up in the greek but i wouldn't i'm not worried about right now but i think the context is more approved in the sense of within a societal ranking system Mm -hmm. yeah so so let's go back to verse 17. You know, I think this, what I mentioned earlier, that the context is suggesting that there's divisions in the church. Verse 18, he brings it up. By the way, I hear that there are divisions, which we knew that from chapter one. I think he's bringing this uh, back full circle. And then he says in verse uh, 17, by the way, when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. You know, and I think this is something, I don't know, I, I can get snarky here a little bit. Me snarky? You? Yeah. That's I know, I know it's a shock, isn't it? I think we just read over a verse like this too quickly and think, okay, you know, well, that church was bad, but ours would never be like this. It's like, Mm -hmm. I don't think they thought they were doing anything bad. I think they thought they were good. Mm -hmm. And I think they thought, at least some within them thought that they they were getting along fine. And Paul comes along and says, you know what, guys, when you get together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For the first place, there are divisions among you. And I think we'd look at our churches and go, you know, well, yeah, there are divisions within our church too. I mean, we have thousand Baptist denominations and other, mm-hmm. you know, but even within our local churches. So I think we should be careful about reading over that too quickly. And I'm, I'm not sitting here intending to condemn any one church or any one, uh, any one group. Uh, but then he goes down in verse 20. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Because when you eat, verse 21, one takes his own supper first and another is hungry and another is drunk. Now, it's uncertain what's going on here. There's a couple of different speculations. One is... Scott McKnight mentioned this when we interviewed him for the Book of Romans there, that, that I think, I don't know if I'd say this is more the standard view, but the typical view is is that the rich were eating, because he goes mm-hmm. on to say, by the way, in verse 22, 20, uh, he says, What do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So he seems to be uh, directing this at the rich and at the wealthy. Mm -hmm. and it could be that the poor had to work on Sunday. It was just a work day that maybe the rich were getting together in a rich person's home or wherever the church was meeting at. uh, And they started eating before the poor had even arrived. By the time the poor had arrived, they were drunk and they were, and again, maybe drunk is is hyperbolic. It could be, Mm -hmm. but the point of that is you guys are well-fed and you're drunk and the poor haven't even eaten yet. And you're shaming them. Um, Another idea is the fact that, well, the rich would eat in uh, kind of what we might call the dining room area. The, the, uh, mm. in the Roman world would be called a triclinium where they have a table with three sides on it. And the, the servers come the, uh, to the outside uh, or the servers come on the inside and you recline, you know, laying on your left side and all that good stuff there. And then Similar the to court, how we
0: would see the Lord's Supper. Or the, yeah, the, the Last Supper, exactly. The Last yeah, Supper. And in a, right, yep. not in a Da Vinci kind of way, but in its true historical That's way.
1: right. Yeah, because they're not sitting at one table and yeah. they're all leaning and all that good stuff. But uh, they're all laying on their side. So the rich would be eating in that room, a smaller room for just them. And then the poor would be eating in other rooms outside that, uh, outside there. And the rich were getting fed first uh, and being drunk and and well-fed, whether that's hyperbole or not is uh, secondary at this point in time. And by the time the the poor got their food, there wasn't uh, sufficient, I guess I'd say there wasn't sufficient uh, stuff left over for them. And and Mm -hmm. they may have been, if that's the case, they may have been... Fed different meals, the, the wealthy eating at the, at the wealthy table and the poor eating at the poor table. I I'm just think, thinking,
0: yeah. I'm just thinking real quick, like the image that pops in the head, even in our modern culture, even outside the church, how we have the, these classes of people where if, if you're part of a organization or working at a school or even at a church where you might have a staff party or a staff lunch and then you finish all the food, and then you call the custodial staff, and it'd be like, "Hey, there's leftover food. You could come get the leftovers." Uh, yeah. And we 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 just do the same thing in our society yeah. now. Even even in church world, I'm sure we do that. So I, I don't know. It just that that image struck me.
1: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting here that is the fact that Paul doesn't argue that the poor should eat what the wealthy are eating. Hey, you guys need to let these guys eat what you're eating. I think his interesting his argument is, "Hey, you guys have homes. You can go home and eat that stuff at your own home." Mm. Uh, you need to eat what they're eating, and if you want to eat what you want to eat, then go do that at your own home. And so I think something like that's going on. Maybe it's because of the poor haven't arrived yet, or maybe it's because of the wealthier doing whatever they're doing, um, but it's showing class distinctions. It's, it's showing a, dis, uh, uh, a distinction within the body of Christ, and it's segregating on wealth and poverty, which is, and the wealth have power, and the wealth are oppressing, and the poor have uh, little power, et cetera. So I think that's what's going on there.
0: And I think the word that captures this whole idea for me, the strongest, we oftentimes use the word divisions and it's like, yeah, of course we're going to divide on stuff. And it seems to be like an acceptable thing that we do even within the church, but 19 when he uses the word factions, because for me, that word faction just indicates like this close knit group of people who are not just dividing over something in an amicable way. It, it always makes me think of like politics or the way that we politically divide. Uh, and, and obviously we don't want to be anachronistic and read that word back into it. It's just, I don't know that that's the word for me where I see that where it's like, like that feels gross. Hmm. Context is always going to play it out, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that word for me is just like, Oh wow, you're going to, you're going to pull the factions card. Yeah, we yeah. need to sit and look at this.
1: All right, let's continue on. You want to read the next section? 23, 23 through 26.
0: Yeah. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death
1: until he comes. And there's definitely the the backward looking part of it, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so let's begin. First off, he uses two words here that are really important, and we're going to get to these again in the first Corinthians chapter fifteen. He says, "I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you," or something along mm-hmm. those lines, depending on your translations. And the words "received" and "delivered" are actually technical words used by the rabbis hmm. for passing on sacred tradition. Interesting. In other words, I received this from uh, as as authoritative um doctrinal tech word and i'm delivering this to you now so, i'm curious uh, he uses
0: that same type of language in roman in, uh, in chapter 15 yes. when he talks about the gospel but he he, he calls it of first importance so i've never made that connection in terms yes. of that receiving so he's this isn't just like oh hey, well, I'm, I'm saying something important it's like he, he's doing authoritative teaching in a sense here
1: that's right this this is this is handing down sacred traditions mm. yeah and then he says it's from the lord Mm-hmm. And it may just mean something that Jesus spoke while he was alive uh, and then was later transmitted to Paul, whatever it might be.
0: In the same way in chapter seven, where he would say, it's not I, but the Lord. So using yeah. that kind of motif. So. Okay. Yep. I think,
1: yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think that's what's happening there. And by the way, when we take communion most often, by the way, we use this passage yep. and not, and not the Luke 22 or mm-hmm. one of Matthew, Mark or Luke. But uh, nonetheless, Jesus is then having a Passover meal when he had given thanks. And that's where the word Eucharist, Eucharist comes from. It's Eucharist in the Greek. When he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he distributes it, and then everyone everyone's eating from the same bread, uh, which is passed out by the, by the head of the household. Now, what's also interesting, though, is he, he uses the word cup. Uh, when you drink from the cup, you proclaim the Lord in verse 26. So, often as you, uh, let's see, verse uh, 25, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, verse 26, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, he doesn't say wine. Uh, mm. And it might be because the word cup has this associations with suffering. Mm. So remember when he was on the road with the disciples, in Mark, this is Mark chapter 10, they're heading to Jerusalem. And again, the, Mark really lays this out where the disciples think we're going to Jerusalem. He's going to become the King. It's going to be so great. That's going to be awesome. We're going to rule with power. We're going to kick the Romans out. We're going to establish a Jewish dynasty. This is going to be so awesome. And Jesus is like, uh, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. And then Peter says, get, you know, Jesus, and he rebukes Jesus privately, right? Mark chapter eight. And then Jesus like in front of them all says, no, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And this is dueling narratives of we're going to go to Jerusalem and reign and rule with power. That's the way Satan in his world does it. And Jesus answer is, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die for the sake of the others. I'm going to establish my kingdom through dying for uh, for others. Uh, and So later on, Mark chapter 10, then, the disciples, James and John, say, Jesus, we want you to do for us a favor. Sure. What is it? Well, when we get to Jerusalem, can we sit on your right and on your left? Ah, we want to be the men of of power on the right and on your left when you get into Jerusalem. Of course, the people sitting on his right and on his left when he's crowned as the king are the two thieves on the cross. So they don't Mm -hmm. understand what they're asking for. And and Jesus effectively says, he's like, you guys don't know what you're asking, do you? He's like, oh, sure we do, Jesus. like, well, look, can you drink the cup that i drink well, of course we can drink the cup that you drink but he means cup of suffering mm-hmm. he says can you be baptized with the baptism which i'm baptized with and baptism is another figure of speech for suffering oh of course we can and she's like well actually you will drink that cup and you will be baptized but to sit on my right and on my left that's not mine to give mm-hmm. uh, and so we see this preview of the suffering that's coming along and of course the luke 22 i think we discussed that i, I was just going to say that in the earlier podcast yeah what's that
0: I was just gonna say Luke twenty two when he's in the the garden praying uh, prior to his betrayal. It let this cup pass, uh, you know, Father, if it's your will, I'll, I'll allow this cup to pass for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, same same idea, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but I was also thinking about the the communion passage in Luke twenty two. Oh, he, that one. Okay, okay, yeah, where he's, he's contrasting the disciples and saying, "Hey, look, this way the kings of the world do it, but the way I do it is this, and okay. uh, and you're gonna rule and whatever else." And and they were arguing about who was the greatest, and he's like, "But this is my body. I'm greater mm-hmm. than you." Hey Jesus, hurry up when when you're done. You know it's it's kind of funny. Those guys but, must have uh, been a real peach to
0: be around. Like I probably would have been just the same as them in the arrogant. Oh, I think, had, yeah, <laughs> I think we would have. Yeah,
1: I think it would have. It would have been a blast. And then Jesus rebukes us like, "Oh, exactly. Right. Yeah, you know how it was when we were children, when we were kids, always getting in trouble in school. Uh, every day. <laughs> not me. <clears throat> not me. My brothers maybe, but not me.
0: Yes, I was an angel. Yeah, that's why my name just, is Angelo. I was an angel.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, my name Robbie Angel Dalrymple. So it's something yeah, like so that's that, your yes. middle name. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Edward, angel, whatever. Angel of death. Um, uh, Anyways, here we go. But uh, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Of course, the new covenant refers back to Jeremiah 31. Mm -hmm. And I remember you read that on a previous episode. I don't know if you want to read it again. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Uh,
0: Yes, I would love to. There you go. All right. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their father on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, uh, with the house of Israel, after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and fixed order of the moon, and the stars uh, for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar? The Lord of
1: hosts is his name. So this is the new covenant. So we, we mentioned before that communion is definitely looking backwards. It's looking back to the Passover event that commemorates the coming the Exodus out of Egypt, that's the formation of the of the, of the nation of Israel. It's their, their formative moment. So also now communion is this new formative moment for this new covenant people of God, right? The, the, the new creation, the new covenant. And again, the new covenant people of God is, of course, Jews and Gentiles and all that good stuff there. Um, we don't need to get into that, I don't think at all. Uh, but that's what communion is. Oh, it's, it's it's certainly backward looking, but we're going to get into it further in a little bit. Um, remembering Jesus's death and what it signifies as the formational moment of the creation of God's new covenant people.
0: Okay. So, do you want to uh, get in the next section there? Yeah. Last, let's section go ahead. twenty-seven to the end. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, verse twenty-seven: Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died but if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged but when we are judged by the lord we are disciplined so that we may not condemn be condemned along with the world
1: yeah go ahead go ahead and do 33 through 34 also actually
0: okay verse 33 so then my brothers and sisters When you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if one is hungry, let him eat at home alone, or let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come.
1: The reason why I think 33 and 34 is important is because it takes us back to where I think the argument was starting all along. At the beginning of the passage, right, it was, you guys have homes to eat this in. What are you doing Mm -hmm. shaming those who have nothing? And then he addresses that at the end. So if he addresses shaming those who have nothing the uh, shaming the poor at the beginning and shaming the poor at the end then it certainly tells us that shaming the poor uh, is the focal point of this entire passage so mm-hmm. you have uh, if you're hungry go home and eat and you will not come under judgment so mm-hmm. the judgment is because of what you're doing to one another or towards one another I, I think that's the way we would read this text all right it begins verse 27. Therefore, I, I noticed that your translation says that and <laughs> whoever, therefore, uh-huh. yeah, that that's fine. Um, the word could be translated as so that, but obviously in this case, it probably is better translated as therefore. I think mm-hmm. one of the translations, I think the NIV is like, so it's like, well, mm. that's not a uh, the idea that is the implications of what's going on are this. 23 through 26 are this is what's going on this. I received this. I'm giving it to you. On the night of the Lord was betrayed, he gave thanks. This is my body. He took the cup and said, This is cup is the new covenant of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as a result of that, you better be careful because if you eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. No, it's like, well, what constitutes an unworthy manner? That's the question at hand now. Well, okay, so. In light of the fact that this is what communion represents, the body and blood of Christ, and uh, commemorating his death and all that good stuff, you better be careful because you're going to eat and drink judgment on yourself. So, verse 28, you ought to examine yourself. And in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink of the cup. If you eat the drink, verse 29, if you eat and drink, you eat and drink judgment on yourself if you do not judge the body rightly. And this leads us to the question of the day, and that is, what is the body? And as I mentioned at the beginning, the standard Christian traditional answer is the body is the body of Jesus. And if you don't recognize that correctly, you have to examine yourself. So that's why we have this prayer of confession, this introspective time. But notice how individualistic that is, right? It fits very much with our modern culture. this individualistic, self-focused, self-centered focus. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just simply saying that's not what the text is about. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good thing to be introspective. It's a good thing to be repentant. It's a good thing to be prayerful. It's a good thing to recognize the body of Jesus for what it is who died for you. and That's a good thing. I'm just simply saying that's not the only thing this text is alluding to here. I think what Paul's getting at then is he's saying, look, you are dishonoring the body when the wealthy come in and eat first. And by the time the poor even arrived, you guys were already fat and drunk. You guys, or or however the, uh, the situation was, was uh, set up there, whatever they were doing there, you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. So the key then is verse 29, and then i say it again. Uh, you judge the body rightly. In chapter 10, if we want to go back for a second, First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, he says this. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread we break a sharing in the body of Christ? That's communion. Look what verse 17 says. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all take of one bread. So, in the context of communion, he defines the body as us. We are one body, and we all partake of one bread. Then he says, as we mentioned already in verse 20, the problem was that they were disregarding the poor um, and disrespecting one another. Paul's answer is, when you do that, you're abusing Christ himself. In other words, your abuse against one another is abuse against Christ, because we are all members of this one body. The consequence of that, then, is chapter 11, verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number have fallen asleep. But, verse 31, if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord. Verse 31, 33, then. Guys, you have you can wait for one another and and eat together. And if anyone's hungry, let them eat at home. So I think that's what's going on here in this whole this whole overall context. I think this is a context of the disregard for one another at communion. And I think this now says a lot to our modern to those listening, right? I think it says a lot to you and to me and it says a lot to our church today. Because we go into communion thinking, oh, as long as I recognize what Jesus's body is and I'm prayerful and repentant, I'm good to go. And I think Jesus is like, guys, uh, if you go to the altar, present your offering, and remember that your brother has something against you, uh, leave. Mm-hmm. First be reconciled to your brother, right? Matthew 5. And then come and present your offerings. And I think that's what the, the entire passage is about.
0: Yeah. And I, I know it's interesting because you said that the what the... Traditional, the standard way of understanding this is: it's you're examining yourself, you're searching yourself. What is the sin that you need to? Right. Uh, it's funny, even in the in the Protestant tradition, it's almost like we need to have this mini confession time. Yeah, like I need yeah. to go to the priest, and okay, I'm just going to Jesus, who's the true yeah, priest, exactly, but I need exactly, to do right. that before I take okay. communion. And, and I remember years ago, this is something where I was reading through this, and it, it just wasn't sitting right with me mm. because that didn't make sense of the text. And I I, I even have a note in my in my Bible that I wrote years ago, this must have been like 12, 13, 14 years ago when it says, you know, let a person examine himself. I said, I wrote examine in light of 17 through 22.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And
0: and that's what you're examining yourself in light of. It's, it's, it's not personal reflection, although that's not bad, but it's that the certain people are getting a drunk and abusing and they're causing factions. And that's the thing that you're examining. Like, is that what I'm doing to my, my local, my community, my gathering of people?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly the case. Now, let me kind of finish this up or wrap this up a little bit, and, and certainly welcome to have your thoughts also on this. I always look at communion whenever I like am administering communion as the pastor in the, in the church and say, communion has three things that we're looking at. The first, of course, is the fact that it remembers the death of Jesus. and there's that, I mean, that's just unambiguous in there, right? This is his body and this is his blood. Uh, and it remembers what he has done for us, uh, remember, and interestingly, by, by the way, Paul Paul begins by saying, "You know, uh, on the night that he was betrayed." It's like, wow! I mean, the, the significance of what Jesus has taught him is: this is my body, and this is this cup is the blood of the new covenant. But it always, but he begins by saying, "On the night that he was betrayed," ah, that's how we treated him, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, I think Communion does indeed first begin with a remembrance of Jesus' death and a remembrance of his resurrection. But I think secondly, then, it reminds us of the unity of the body of Jesus. In other words, Jesus's death was also a model for us. So we're going to see this in in Ephesians and elsewhere, that as Christ loved the church, so also we ought to love one another. That husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for it. So also we are, this idea of mutually dying for one another. In other words, communion isn't simply just remembering what Jesus did. Communion is also a testifying of And I also am going to take up my cross and follow him by laying down my life for one another. And I think that's why if we are having friction or division or conflict with a a brother or sister in Christ, and we haven't reconciled or sought reconciliation, then you shouldn't be taking communion right now because this is what communion represents. It represents a willingness, a testimony to one another that we are willing to die for each other. Just like Christ died for us, we're, and what I mean by die for each other, I mean we're gonna love each other the way Christ loved us. And again, love doesn't mean I like everybody; it just means mm-hmm. I I love them, mm-hmm. and I will seek out their best interest at all times. Now, just to maybe clarify one thing on that, also, and that before we go any further, and that is, I'm not saying because it, you could kind of take my words and like go, okay, I'm just never gonna be able to take communion because I'm all there's always a conflict with with others. If you've made strides for reconciliation or maybe you realize, okay, I did something, but you know, I, I need to let things simmer down for a couple of days. Fine, take communion. What The point of that is, is that you've sought reconciliation or you're seeking reconciliation or you're doing whatever you can to bring about reconciliation. Yeah. But that also takes two people or, or two sides. And so if you've done your part, forgiven them, if you've done their, your part by trying to keep peace, if you've done your part by seeking reconciliation, whatever, then you can take communion fine. I don't think we take this so strongly that we limit ourselves like no one's ever going to be worthy. Of Everyone who wants to take communion and come forward, like one guy comes up. Like, no, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case there. Mm-hmm. But I do think that this is an important part of, of communion. So it remembers the death of Jesus. And it's also, secondly, us testifying that we ourselves are also going to lay down our lives for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right? And then a third thing, or for one another. And a third thing is, I think communion reminds us of the eternal banquet that's coming for us. That someday, I know this is the blood of the new covenant. And the new covenant, guess what's going to happen when the new covenant comes in fullness? There'll be no more hunger. There'll be no, no more Thor.
0: No more Thor. Thor just Thor. Iron Man there, and Captain it's like America. To say
1: thirst, right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> when it comes in fullness, there's going to be no more hunger, no more thirst. There's going to be no more mourning or crying or death or pain. All things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. And so I think communion reminds us of the fact that someday we're going to sit in His heavenly banquet table, eating from the tree of life and drinking from the river of the water of life and fellowshipping with Christ. So Revelation 19 verse 9 says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I think communion also, it's also forward looking. It's Mm -hmm. looking forward to what God is going to do and what God is going to bring. And I think we get that from the fact from uh, Isaiah chapter 24. Uh, I won't read all of it, but I'm just going to read. At the end of Isaiah 24, and the beginning of Isaiah 25, and I'm just going to read Isaiah 25, and I'm going to skip down to verse six. It talks about verse one: "You are You are my God; I'll exalt You, on him and i give thanks." Uh, you've made uh, a city into a heap, and your fortified cities are ruin. It's all these great things that you've done. Verse four: You've been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. And then verse uh, six: It says. The Lord of hosts will, will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up all the covering which, which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He'll swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all their faces and remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Ah, that's what communion also reminds us of. So I think it. I think it's backward looking for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I think it's present looking of us testifying that we are going to lay down our lives for one another just as Christ laid down his life for us. And I think it's forward looking to the new creation and coming in fullness and the lavish banquet that we have awaiting for us. Hmm. That's beautiful stuff. Thank yeah. you. with that, <clears throat> <sorry. clears
0: throat> I'm not choked up. It's just congestion. This gets me sometimes too. Yeah. You always do it to me, Rob. Every week you get me at least once. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned earlier how in your church, you, you proclaim that like, Hey, communion should be celebrated every Sunday. Uh, And there's different perspectives. I, I was even reading somewhere recently. I forget what context it was about how the early church, even sometimes, and this might be like second, third century, they would only practice maybe communion annually, or there, there's, always, it seems like there's always been, I forget mm. the context. It was, there, there was some. Baptism was annual. Uh, no, but it was specifically about oh, the Lord's supper. And it, it, I forget what I was reading and who I was listening to a lecture on, but it mm. seems like there has been distinctions on like, how do we do this thing? Um, and so regardless of what it is, as you trace church history, there's definitely different views of what communion is, Mm -hmm. when we should do it, how often we should do it. Uh, You know, and now it's turned into, it's, it'd be a joke to call it a meal because in most cases, you know, in my tradition, you get your little shot glass of grape juice and a little cracker that just makes your mouth taste weird afterwards. Uh, It's not anything like what it is. Uh, And, you know, even in my tradition, we've had a shift in my local congregation where for years we held to one particular view where it was only remembrance. We we've read that word a couple of times, so the idea mm-hmm. of remembering is there, and we've kind of adopted a different position. And, and there's kind of four main views right. on how t- Christians have traditionally understood this. Is that is that helpful to kind of go through that a little bit? To yeah, sure. We can
1: we can summarize that here, here at the end. I don't know that it's. it's uh, I I look at these things as you know how I approach theological yeah, issues, yeah. right? And it's like, okay, come on, let's are we ready to move on, right? Um, but yeah, there's the Catholic view that does D de- indeed have tradition in the historical church's view. And that is that they believe that the, that the bread and wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now this is really significant for Catholics. And so like, I don't hold to a Catholic view and I don't really care theologically sometimes on all the nuances of different things, but I would definitely respect this. If I went into a Catholic church, I wouldn't take communion
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because you're not welcome to, because they believe that this, when the priest blesses the elements, mm-hmm. it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. It tastes like bread it drinks like wine and it tastes like wine, but it's not uh, bread and it's not wine. It's actually the body of Jesus. That's why they call it the mass, Yes, right? It's the sacrifice of Jesus again. And so I don't, a lot of people don't know this. I think I think the year is 1215, if I'm not mistaken. From the year 1215 until 1960, was it 67, 60, 62, 63? Vatican II. Vatican II, right? Mm-hmm. So in 1962, so I think something like that. From 1215 to 1962... You only ate the bread in a Catholic church mm-hmm. because they so strong. I know it's the, the idea of this being the body of Jesus was being challenged by some, by some earlier reformers. This is before the reformation formally started. They were challenging this Catholic theology, this Catholic doctrine that this is actually Jesus's body. So the Catholic church has a council and they say, you know what? It's so much is the body and blood of Jesus that we're not going to let the congregation drink the wine because if they spill it, Mm-hmm. they spilt the blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. If they drop the bread, they can pick it up and eat it. So it's okay.
0: So What's I funny, to- is
1: Even on that though, there's even early
0: controversies. I think I want to say it was Aquinas who would write about that and say, Hey, what if a crumb falls yeah. and a mouse comes and eats it? Like, what does that mean? And so they're, they're struggling with this thing yeah, you know, yeah. for the last thousand years. But yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. But the point though, is that if your grandparents were Catholics or whatever, they probably went to church where they didn't eat, mm-hmm. you know, drink the wine. So communion of both kinds was a famous um, phrase uttered by the reformers during the time of Luther and, Luther and Calvin and all. And even before that, we want to take communion of both kinds, meaning we want to eat the bread and drink the wine. All right, the Lutheran view is that the bread and the wine are not actually the body and blood of Jesus, but the presence of Jesus is actually there. In other words, mm-hmm. Jesus is really there. It just he isn't actually you're not actually eating his body or actually drinking his blood then you kind of have a reformed view, right? A Presbyterian view, which says there's certainly a presence of Christ at communion, a, a real presence of Christ, maybe not in the elements uh, or even with the elements, but he's simply there. And it, it is, you know, we call it a sacrament, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a sacred thing, you know, baptism and communion for us Protestants, the, the two sacraments. Uh, and then the Baptist view, that's the third view. Then the Baptist view is simply saying there's no presence of Christ there in a sense, that's greater than at any other time. Christ is always present with us. He's always with us. And communion is no different than any other point in time. It's only a memorial. So you kind of have these these four views. And and again, it's like, okay, cool. I I think what's important is that we're taking communion and that we're recognizing what I think are the three things, commemorating Jesus's death and what he's done for us, acknowledging the fact that we're laying down our lives for one another uh, and love towards one another, and then remembering, of course, the, the heavenly banquet that's awaiting us.
0: Yeah. And there's definitely nuance there. I mean, there's mm-hmm. books and articles that can be right. read on this. Exactly. This does make it important then for if you ever do visit, you know, a Catholic, if you're a Protestant, you visit a Catholic, whether it's a, a funeral or a wedding or yeah. a service uh, where they would oftentimes, you know, have, you know, celebrate the Eucharist right, is what right. they call it. Celebrate the mass. You know, as a Protestant, it would be inappropriate to take it because this is only something it's a means of grace that is given. And so it's inappropriate to, for anyone who's not a baptized Catholic to take it. And so you could go up there, you could cross your arms and they would give you, you know, the priest would give you a blessing, but in that regard, it'd be inappropriate to take it. It's similar to, I forget if we talked about this offline before we started in many, uh, reformed, especially traditions, they would practice it. Actually, it's not even reformed because I know some other ones like missionary Baptists, do this, but they practice what's called a closed communion Mm -hmm. where it's only something practiced for that local congregation. You have to be a member of that church. Right. Right. Because they wouldn't give it to anyone who, even if you're a Christian, I I remember visiting a missionary Baptist church and in the pastor, he was saying how uh, he was giving me some of their distinctives, how his father-in-law is a pastor in the missionary Baptist church. You know, uh, church, and so this this guy was a pastor in Oakley, California, and his father in law was in Hayward, California. He says, "When my father in law visits, even though we're both ordained in the Mm. denomination, I do not serve him tradition, or I do not serve him communion because he's not part of our uh, congregation."
1: Yeah, Uh, the idea behind that is just so everyone understands is that they're taking this idea that you're not recognizing the body of Jesus for what it is, and they're saying the body of Jesus is the body of Jesus and not the body of the church. And so only Christians can recognize the body of Jesus for what it is. And so they'll say, if you're not a Christian, this is standard protocol. If you're not a Christian, you know, we encourage you not to take communion with us. Um, You know, please respectfully, you know, pass it, let it pass by. But what they're saying then is, is that we can only be assured who the Christians are if you're a member of our church. Mm -hmm. Because membership in our congregation, to be a member, you must be a Christian. And we Mm -hmm. go through this process of affirming that you indeed actually know what you're saying and know what you're doing and you really believe what you believe and therefore we're saying yeah you are a christian the idea being if you're not a christian you're you're eating and drinking judgment on yourselves and we're not going to serve this to you so the only way we can know for sure is that you're a member of our church i i I think that's i think that's just going too far i I think Mm -hmm. that's not what the passage is saying but i'll respect people who might hold that view
0: yeah, yeah. And, and so you could see there's probably a good motive behind all these things. Mm-hmm. And even into my class on Sunday that I was teaching, someone brought up, he's a former Catholic, he brought up the idea of Catholics not serving communion to non-Catholics, and he, he was kind of right. offended by it. And I defended, I'm like, it makes sense. If yeah. you understood their right. theology, it makes sense that they would reject me. And and I struggled with that too. Uh, you know, I have family members who are Catholic and I would attend a lot of stuff. And at first I'm like, hey, are you kidding me? Like, I can't, re-, you know, I was kind of snarky. Like mm-hmm. I have a seminary degree. I, like right, right, right. like, I know I probably could I'm a know, pastor. This. Yeah, it's like, I know more about this than you might, you know, yeah, yeah, some, yeah, right, these, exactly. some of these guys that have conversations with, but then you realize, okay, it's not about intellect. It's about the consistency of the theological position. Yeah. And I totally get, obviously I don't agree with it. That's why I'm not Catholic, but I understand why you do what you do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And just to make sure everyone, uh, everyone at home understands what we're saying, what the Catholic is saying is, is that if you don't recognize the body of Jesus for the body of Jesus, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourselves. And since you as a Mm non-Catholic don't believe that this is actually Jesus's body, that when the priest blessed it, it became his body. (laughs) Since you don't recognize that you're eating and drinking judgment on yourselves. Yeah. So that it's like, okay, well, I, I don't agree, but I certainly will respect that. Yeah, and again, yeah. this is the whole idea, right? That we respect one another. Isn't that mm-hmm. what, what we're saying community even re- represents? The fact that we're respecting one another, the fact that we're understanding one another, we're honoring one another. So yeah. 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 And so I think there is an important
0: to like, even though like there's multiple views, multiple ways of practice that, you know, we called a closed communion, where like the missionary Baptist Church, their example, there's there's other churches that just open it up to everyone. Hey, whoever wants to take it. There's other churches that open it up. They don't demand that you're a right. member, but they might say, hey, if you're not a Christian, you know, pass it by. Uh, that's where my church would be at. And I, I would be okay with with that. The idea though, is that wherever tradition you land in, have you actually thought through these ideas? Right. Because I think that's important too. It, do you have a conviction about these things or, or do you, I, I shouldn't say that this is the most important thing, but I think it is an important thing, especially before you chastise other positions do you just assume that the tradition you come from is the only correct one on this right uh, and there's not good reason for why people might practice these in different ways right
1: right yeah so
0: yeah uh so cool so i don't know any, anything else on this as we we close up no i think that's communion? good yeah so we don't, we don't want to go through the formal terms transubstantiation no. consubstantiation we don't give a test on this at the end
1: no there's a <laughs> there's a heavenly handshake that you'll need to know but we can't do that on the air let nice. do this and then, that and then that and then that and then that and then and then you're in there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> good Did everybody get that
0: yeah right yeah okay. we, we should post a video of that make that a gif yeah that was the i could see it you can't okay. everyone else can okay so that's communion we've settled the problem yeah. everyone should know everything they needs need to know about communion that's right, right, that's right. Uh, for next week we're going to continue on so we're going to get into chapter yep. uh, 12 gifts. yep nice and it, it should be noted too as we look at this it's almost like there's a, a logical. I don't want to call, use, use the word logical because I, mm-hmm. I, I just don't know that's the way Paul is. I'm not saying he's illogical. Mm-hmm. It's just I just don't think he's thinking like a Westerner. Um, but he's he's everything is laying out the layout yeah. here so far. It's how to strive for unity within the church, and so that right. looks like how do you practice something like the Lord's Supper? How do you practice? what we'll get into in spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and even in chapter 13, which right, is right. Uh, the yeah. famous love passage, which everyone reads at weddings, that's still about spiritual gifts, <laughs> right? So yeah. it, it's seeing like, how was the congregation supposed to uh, just work together? Yep. So cool. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.